0: Today I'm speaking with Professor Matthew Harsh. Matthew Harsh is an Associate Professor of Science, Technology, and Society, and the Director for the Center of Expressive Technologies at California Polytechnic State University. He holds a BS in Materials Engineering from Northwestern University, and as a Marshall Scholar, he earned an MSc and a PhD in Science and Technology Studies from the University of Edinburgh. His research thinks about how new and emerging technologies can improve livelihoods in Africa. Dr. Harsh's recent work thinks about how we can best prepare students to responsibly guide innovation toward just and sustainable ends. And he runs several training programs related to this on technology policy and community engagement. He's the director of Computing Cultures, a film about computer science research in Kenya and Uganda, and the senior producer of Brother Time. documentary about political unrest after the 2007 Kenyan elections. His films have received numerous awards and have been shown at film festivals and events around the world. His work can be found in many academic journals including the Journal of International Development, Science and Public Policy, Development and Change, GeoForum, and Engineering Studies. Hi Matt! Hi Deb! So, You teach in the context of Cal Poly's Interdisciplinary Studies in Liberal Arts. Why is interdisciplinary studies so important, especially for tech?
1: There's a main institutional reason why interdisciplinary studies is important at Cal Poly. um, And that's been mainly about trying to find a home for our students who are struggling because their disciplinary major just isn't working for them. Um, One thing I didn't know about Cal Poly, and I don't know if you know this Deb, but I didn't know that, that students, when they come to Cal Poly, They have to choose their major before they apply. And so, you know, you're 18 and trying to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life. And so oftentimes it can be a hard, a hard thing. And sometimes it can be difficult to change majors. And sometimes it's not just that uh, the major itself, students are looking for a place where they can ask different kinds of questions, where they can think about problems that really don't fit neatly inside one box. Um, and so that's the reason that the institution created interdisciplinary studies. Our students are amazing, and that it's just that they didn't have the right home. And so we have these great students who now um, have found a place where they can ask the kinds of questions and engage with the kinds of things um, that that they just couldn't do in other departments. So that's the sort of institutional reason. It's kind of it's connected to the the bigger reason I I would say about technology too is that real world problems don't um, fit nicely into disciplinary buckets. And so if you look at any big challenge that we're facing, I mean even if you look at COVID-19, um, you know, I think a lot of people would say, "Oh, this is a a a challenge that is about, you know, the medical system or it's about, you know, biology and and vaccine research, um, but it's actually there are huge huge challenges about like the social and the policy dimensions of what's happening now about thinking about equity, about, you know, who has access to healthcare. Um who has access to internet technology so that they can continue being a student, you know, um, in school or in college? Um, you know, how is this, the disease disproportionately affecting um, different groups of people? Who is not going to be able to come to Cal Poly anymore from which communities because they're being impacted by this? So these are questions that you can't answer just with one discipline alone, and certainly can't answer just with scientific um, and technical disciplines. You also need um, social science and humanities, and so. Uh, I think that's why interdisciplinary studies is really important at Cal Poly and important for for technology.
0: Well, when I was 18, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And this was back when dinosaurs roamed the land. And now I am very many years past 18, and I have no idea what I want to do.
1: So we all struggle with that. And I think our students appreciate hearing that, actually, because they realize that, you know, careers are nonlinear. You know, and here we are thinking about um an area ethical technology that people you know even just a few years ago weren't thinking about
0: what led you down this path how did you get interested in the kinds of teaching and research that isla does
1: sitting in a dark room and deciding i i didn't want to be working for a fortune 500 company anymore A slightly longer version um is that you know i've always been someone that's interested in science and technology i come from a very um i'm very proud of the fact that i come from a long line of engineers my grandfather was an electrical engineer and my dad's a mechanical engineer my brother, um, is a computer engineer, um, but I've also always been into arts and music and and people. And so when I when I decided to, um, I thought, yeah, I'm going to get an engineering degree, and I applied to do a uh, a simultaneous sort of, um, MBA. And I thought, I'll you know I'll go work for a, um, a good company, and I can make the world a better place. But what I what I quickly realized is that the the kinds of things. That I was doing, um, kind of outside the outside the classroom, when um, like we're, like producing videos and music and working on um, you know a lot of uh, activist issues around the environment and indigenous communities in the U.S. I realized that um, I couldn't do that um, as a profession the way that I wanted to if I stayed an engineer. So like you know, I found that the kinds of sort of the work I want to do, the questions I had. Um, I could get partly there with, with sort of a technical education, but not all the way. So I was a co-op, which means that I, I studied engineering. So I worked for what became Johnson & Johnson, uh, their orthopedic division. So we made joint replacements. And you know my job, this was that the dark room I mentioned, is first I would get a box in the mail and inside would be a, a bloody implant. Um, and I would have to unbox it and um, do what we could to sterilize it without changing the structure of anything and put it in the electron microscope in the room and try to figure out why it broke and why we're getting it back. And oftentimes it was put in wrong, um, but our customers were the doctors, not the patients. And so it was always a tricky thing to do to figure out like, well, how do we talk about um, responsibility? Like, what does responsibility mean like um, in terms of innovation, in terms of making a product? Because it's not as simple as whose fault it is or how things are designed. I spent some time working with a blacksmith for for my senior project, all Cal Poly students have to do one, Mm -hmm. working with a a blacksmith, to, who was trying to recreate uh, a steel making process that had been lost in antiquity and he was working with uh, another blacksmith in Florida and this was like early this is going to date me <laughs> days of the internet and he, um, he and this guy in, in Florida were collaborating on making on the process and I was doing the metallurgy to see I cut apart a really old sword to see how sort of close they got and they got really close and then the guy in Florida went and patented it And so it it made me sort of ask like, what does partnership look like in innovation and how does cooperation, what does ownership look like? So I had a lot of these kind of stories, you know, um, where I was involved in things and and I realized that, you know, the technical side of things kind of only gave me part of the answer. Um, And that's how I discovered this interdisciplinary field of um, science and technology studies or science, technology and society. And I found that's the place where, in my view, to do it well, you still have to know a lot of technical stuff. You have to know... How technologies are designed, and how they work, and um, how science works, Uh, but you also have to understand how all that stuff is situated um, in systems of people, and you sort of have to understand how people work, how institutions and organizations and politics work.
0: And in your answer, you really bring out, I think, that humanists and technologists maybe come to different answers to the same problems. Are there different questions or different kinds of questions that technologists and humanists ask?
1: Certainly um, different questions, I think, that, um, you know, that humanists and, and, and you know, engineers or, or technologists, if you want to use that word, ask. I mean, one of the things that I often tell my students that take Introduction to Science, Technology, and Society on the first day is that, um, especially when I'm teaching engineering students, is that the kind of questions that we ask Um, In a class like that that uses a lot of humanistic approaches or social science approaches is that there isn't necessarily a right answer to the questions that we're going to ask in class. And that can be really challenging for students who come more from maybe a natural science background or an engineering background where, you know, you get a problem set um, and at the end of doing the lab, there is a right answer. Sometimes in engineering, um, it's a design problem, and you're trying to balance costs of materials versus size and weight and all these types of things. So there isn't exactly one right answer, but some answers are better than others. And sometimes, as you know, in humanistic thinking, there can be a right answer. For the most part, if you're thinking about how to apply some of those humanistic approaches um, to understand science and technology, there isn't a right answer. Like if we're trying to say, what is the right balance between privacy and security um in the united states it's like well there's not exactly one answer to that and when you complicate the picture even more to all the different kinds of values that are involved beyond just privacy uh, and security when we're thinking about you know technology and how um pervasive it's become in our lives there this is a really complicated question and there clearly isn't one kind of answer so i think when it comes to thinking about um technology from these different perspectives it's helpful to kind of think about defining problems and defining the types of uh um answers you'll get once you define the problems that way.
0: Sometimes I tell my students that the reason it's called humanities is because there's so many of us and there's no way to solve for all of us. There's no way to solve for the problem of the human. And the idea that there is a way to solve for the problem of the human is a kind of totalitarian one that has oftentimes got us into a lot of problems. A lot of trouble. So that's <laughs> a really useful distinction. I wanted to ask a follow-up question to see whether we could get to the root of some of these differences, because as much as I think we're asking sometimes different questions, there is a lot more similarity between the sciences and the humanities than the kind of campus divide that we often live under really allows for us to think about. And ISLA, I think, does a good job in trying to bridge those things, but there's still really strong institutional designs. We tend these days to think about tech under the rubric of sciences and ethics under the rubric of the humanities. Where I did my graduate work at UCLA, we actually had South Campus, and that was where all of the science classes and all the science and tech majors lived. And then we had North Campus, which is where all of the humanities lived. And the joke I always told people was that South Campus had functional air conditioning and North Campus had gargoyles. But it wasn't always that stark, it wasn't. I mean, Descartes was a philosopher and a mathematician. Da Vinci was an artist and a brilliant student of anatomy, a brilliant literary scholar and an engineer among so many other things. These thinkers were neither exceptions nor did they consider the fact that their interests span these two categories even odd, you know? In fact, their understanding and grasp of scientific methods and concepts were critical to their understanding of the humus- their humanistic pursuits and vice versa, right? So how do we get to the point where we think of these two things as opposite to one another?
1: That's a great question. I do think a bit more about how we organize our universities today to disciplines and um, why it is that we um, we have the sort of disciplinary system we have now. Um, and a lot of it really comes down to uh, what we what we talk about in science and technology studies is, you know, the Politics of knowledge production, or the you know the political economy of expertise, um, and what that what that means, um, at least the way I often think about this, is that you know why do we have scientific disciplines? You know we have them, or you know disciplines in general, right? We we have them because you know people come together around. Um, shared methodologies generally speaking western democracies draw a lot on expertise um, to make their states work and if you're can if you are a disciplinary expert um, in one area you'll have a lot more power a lot more access to decision makers so all these sorts of things that really um, aren't necessarily to do with the science itself or the discipline itself have really encouraged people academics to kind of separate off into tribes really
0: What are some of the challenges in working in interdisciplinary collaboration between the technical and a humanistic field? How can technologists and humanists better work together in the academy and in the practice of technology?
1: One of the challenges obviously is is understanding um, just the the language that different disciplines use. I mean, you know, we're academics. We know that, you know, what we do is just filled with jargon and words um, and theories and concepts that someone outside of our, even our sort of subfield might not even understand. And so when you're thinking, you know, reaching across, like way across what might people call like a broad disciplinary divide, a biologist, um, you know, working with a sociologist, um, you can have a hard time kind of understanding each other um, because of language. But I would say that even the bigger challenge, though, I think goes to something more deep, more deep about just the way that sometimes different disciplines and um you know the humanities versus sciences and engineering maybe even see the world different views about the nature of the world and the nature of our knowledge about the world and a lot of people from sciences and engineering have you know a kind of realist ontology um that there you know there is um a real physical world out there that we can discover, you know, through, um, uh, that we can discover through the scientific method. But a lot of people that look at the social world, think of, it, you know, to have what we might call like a constructivist epistemology, um, where they don't necessarily think that there is um, one right answer for the social world is X, you know, that a lot of the um, the things that we see and think about, even science and technology. Um, It isn't just the sort of technically best answer or nature that gave us this solution that we have. It had a lot to do with those kinds of politics I was talking about before with expertise. And so that can be a huge issue when, you know, people just kind of see the world fundamentally in a different way and kind of see science of the nature of making knowledge fundamentally in a different way. Um, But you you were kind of asking, I think also, like what can we do to make these things work better? Um, and it's been my experience that um, I guess going back to your point about thinking about humanity and people is that if you can get along with someone as a person, that is a great first step to doing research together, or teaching together, or doing academic work together. Um, the collaborations that I've been involved in that are working with uh, I don't know, people in nanotechnology or synthetic biology or, or you know computer science, essentially, if you can connect as two people. Um, you know, it might not be for everyone, but like, if you can sit down and like have a beer with someone, if you drink beer or a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and laugh and joke and laugh at yourself and not take yourself too seriously, um, so I really think like to make these collaborations work, it a lot of it comes down to like, can you not take yourself so seriously? Can you have a sense of humor? Are can you be empathetic? Those are a lot of the skills that are kind of intangible things that you know we need to, to um, help our students appreciate. Um, and learn, um, because I think that's a lot of what makes these collaborations successful.
0: So the answer to my question, how technologists and humanists can better work together in the academy and in the practice of technology is shared beverages.
1: Um, Essentially, it boils down to shared beverages. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be deterministic. You can choose your beverage.
0: (laughs) You were talking earlier about the idea that scientists or people trained in the material sciences in particular, and humanists actually see the world in very different ways and use the terms epistemological and ontological. For our listeners, epistemological essentially means a way of seeing or understanding or interpreting the world and ontological means the actual nature of the world being. Do you have an example of a case where these two different ways of seeing the world from the scientific perspective and from the perspective of a more humanistic approach actually makes a difference in the tech sphere?
1: One of the most famous ones um, is by a guy named um, Brian Wynne, and he is a sociologist um, from England, from the UK. Um, And he did this project where he was studying sheep farming um, in um, the Lake District of Northwest England and how um, the sheep farmers and the government of the time were dealing with radioactivity in the soil that blew over after Chernobyl. You know, the winds blew a lot of their radioactive uh, particles to the UK and it always rains in, um, in the Lake District. And so the rain came down and their radiation got into the soils and um, they started to see some levels of radioactivity um, in sheep um, and so the government got really concerned and essentially sent in a bunch of experts to try to understand what was happening and if the sheep were safe to eat and what Brian Wynn's study showed is that a lot of the that the sheep farmers had a lot of um, knowledge that was really important um, to that decision making about like whether or not the lamb was safe um, but it wasn't scientific knowledge like they they had that knowledge because they lived on the land and so they really understood like, how water pooled and where it pooled. They understood the very complex process of how you select a sheep, uh, which sheep you select to bring to market and win and all these other things that you can really only understand if you're a sheep farmer, whereas the scientists coming in with uh, a more academic, a more university-based education, didn't understand as much about how sheep farm work. Their models didn't account for the different types of soils. Um, And so at the end of the day, there was a lot of mistrust (laughs) um and there was a lot of arguments um and there was a lot of bad calls that hurt a lot of people's livelihoods and that really um kind of the moral of the story is that it comes down to this idea of sort of a way of of being in the world um it's connected to the way we know about the world and so you know the the scientific experts had a certain way of of kind of you know being in the academy and doing experiments usually in a lab um, even in, in a more controlled setting in the field and then the sheep farmers had a way of being in, in the world that, you know, um, was a lot more messy um, and, and to the scientist's point of view, um, but they both had valuable knowledge. Um, and, the, you know, what really came down to is that um, there wasn't an appreciation, kind of what we could say if we're using that jargon, like across that epistemic divide about, you know, um, knowledge about being a farmer from living that experience and scientific knowledge. So that's one of those those um, case studies that really just helps you see that, like, yeah, you know, the the, the way we are in the world um, and the way we know about the world um, are connected. So there's we, we talk about the idea of, of co-production in my field. Um, it's an idea by this woman named Sheila Jasanoff at Harvard, and that's her her idea, that the way of being and the way of knowing is connected.
0: Matt, I don't know if you know this, but when I was considering coming to Cal Poly, the prospect of collaborating with you on a vision for ethical technology was one of the major compelling reasons that actually made me want to come here. So I'm curious, I sh- I probably should have asked this before I decided to come here, but now I want to know, what led you to want to think more deeply about the intersection of ethics and tech?
1: Oh, we've got you now, Deb. Um, that's a great question. I mean, I guess I've been thinking about the intersection of ethics and technology. Um, uh, I mean, I didn't always know to call it that, I suppose, Um, but I've been thinking about it kind of, you know, for a long time, like I, those stories that, um, you know, I I mentioned about the kind of projects I was working on even as an undergraduate, um, to me, um, you know, if you think about like partnership and innovation and, you know, um, uh, responsibility, when uh, an area of technology fails, um, to me those are questions that you know uh, are right in the wheelhouse of science, technology, and society, or um, ethics and tech. And so, I've been thinking about it for a long time. I didn't always know um, sort of what to call it in terms of, of ethics, um, but I, in my own work and my own research, uh, I guess I started to use that language um, more explicitly um, when. Uh, I, uh, I started to work on new and emerging um, technologies, particularly uh, um, in East and Southern Africa. So a lot of my work um, is about um, how innovation works in Africa and, and whether or not new technologies like, you know, artificial intelligence um, can create benefits for everyday people living in Nairobi or um, you know Johannesburg. Um, and so when I I was doing some work um, about nanotechnology so that's an area of science and engineering where essentially you're getting things really 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 small like nano means one billionth of a meter so like on the size of a virus and when you get things that small things can have really useful properties like if you get silver really small it can kill bacteria um, really really well Um, and so um, we are doing some uh, project about trying to understand If this new area of research nanotechnology that you know generally speaking costs a lot of money and takes a lot of resources um if it would create benefits um we were working in south africa you know can this area create benefits for you know um uh the poorer people in the country living in townships or would it just create benefits for wealthier mostly white south africans that could afford um to buy you know a pair of socks that had nano silver in them so that your feet don't smell after you go hiking um and It was in the course of doing that work that I really started to think explicitly in terms of equity um, and ethics. I've been thinking about this kind of, you know, um, (laughs) I guess, for my whole sort of um, academic life.
0: Has the conversation changed in the past few years, in your view?
1: I mean, it depends on what area of technology we're talking about. I mean, a lot of what you and I uh, think about Deb, you know, we're thinking when we think about tech. We think about the digital we think about silicon valley we think about companies that do social media and search engines and all of that um and so i think there i think you know you'd have to be living under a rock <laughs> to say that like the conversation hasn't changed over the last couple of years because you know um you know when we uh, were presenting our ideas about ethical technology to the office of research and to donors you know one of the first things we started with was this idea of tech lash, like a backlash against um, uh, uh, big tech firms, essentially. Um, and a lot of it was because of of ethics, right? Because of, you know, you look at what's happening um, in workplaces in terms of, you know, um, discrimination, um, you know, racism, racism uh, you look at, you know, hiring practices that only only favor certain types of people. Um, and that's just you know, um, bias sometimes that that um, can come into a technology or an algorithm from the data that's used. And that's just kind of the create, creation of a technology. If you look at the broader system of, you know, what technologies do out in the world, you know, if all kinds of issues, you know, about um, privacy, um, about, you know, um, uh, technologies promoting isolation and individualism. And, you know, some go as far as to say that You know, Facebook essentially broke our democracy. And so to me, these are all ethical issues. And so, of course, like, of course, the conversation has changed um, over the last couple of years.
0: You mentioned Facebook, and I think we can all have questions about that technology. Is there one technological problem or one case in particular that stands out to you as the kind of issue that leads you to want to work on this?
1: You know, I can't say that there's one Technology, but I guess like the the issue for me really is about technologies that we see what I would call you know an an equity gap um, in terms of sort of who gets to decide how things are designed or how things will be used, um, and also um, who benefits and who doesn't benefit. And so I guess throughout my career, anytime I've I've, I've been drawn to think about problems where you really. Um, see those disparities, um, and it's not always clear what to do um, to fix it.
0: And I think one thing that really stands out from our conversations is how deep in the infrastructure you're really looking. It's not just that the product designs um, maybe sometimes don't line up with human values. It's also about the educational background of people who go into these designs. And it's also about the hiring practices and the biases in hiring practices that limit the perspectival robustity of those who are um, then going on to design things for the general public. And I really am interested in hearing from you about how your intervention in particular in education and curriculum is suited to address the ethical tech problems that you clearly have invested so much of your life into what would an undergraduate coming out of your
1: program know someone who's going to go that that's getting a technological education like they they can't just learn about technology and sure you know um uh universities have had general education requirements you know for a long time um but that's not that's not going far enough um and that's not um, the kind of interdisciplinarity um that i'm thinking of you know you can uh you know i did material science engineering and i i studied latin for a year like you know i did some humanities but um you know i think that that made me you know um i appreciated that and it gave me some great background um but you know it wasn't necessarily uh, i didn't have a way of even of putting my social sciences and humanities classes in conversation with my science and engineering classes. And so, you know, that's to me, people talk about different models like interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity. But the idea, you know, one of the main ideas for these these if if we're gonna try to address these issues is that, you know, we need to train people differently so that they can not just, you know, not just think one like take some classes in one discipline. Um, Okay, fine, then they're taking classes in a few disciplines, we need to teach them in a a way where they can put those disciplines um, into conversation with one another, um, realize the strengths and weaknesses of each, um, and, um, you know, try to combine them um, in a way to solve a a real world problem. And so that's the kind of thing that that we do in the science, technology, um, and society minors. What you and I were talking about, Deb, is is doing more in the sense of uh, especially... With a view of how can we uh, 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 train the future workforce that's you know currently um, being sought after by these technology companies to work at the intersection of ethics and technology. So taking what we've already done um, and expanding on that, these design decisions we make where we think, oh, this is just you know about doing it A or B. We could do it A or B, but we um, we we choose B because it's you know, going to be cheaper, efficient. They can have these really big ethical decisions, and so you know what what um, what all students you know that that go into anything technical have to realize is that you know what they're doing in the world, you know they're um, um, they're making these technologies that can you know um, replace human action, you know that can um, uh, really uh, have a huge impact.
0: It's interesting. I recently heard this fascinating metaphor for thinking about the misalignment frequently between tech and our values. And um, and the metaphor goes something like this. Imagine if you're sitting in a chair for 10 minutes a day and you don't really notice when you're sitting in the chair for 10 minutes a day, all of the ways in which that chair might be misaligned with your body. But suddenly you're sitting in the chair for 20 hours a day And every single place where the chair is misaligned with your body is now going to start to really hurt. And I think one one reason why ethical tech has become so pronounced as a hot topic is that we're using more and more of it. We're sitting in that chair for 20 hours a day. And so every way that it is misaligned with us is now something that's going to become very painful and i wanted to ask you why do you think that that ethical tech is such a hot topic of conversation what's hurting us what's the misalignment
1: i would say that the not only are we sitting in the chair longer um the chair is constantly being redesigned and moving um and maybe we don't even recognize it as a chair um uh anymore and so i think you know that that um the misalignment i suppose you know it's um it's very deep i mean as you mentioned before it's not just about you know the you know i was talking about lined and winners work and and those are like everyday decisions that designers make when they're sitting behind a screen and designing a product or you know um designing something you know physically in the real world too but those decisions um that are made before that in terms of you know how the company is organized the hiring process um how people are trained all feed into that too so it's a very, um, it's a complicated chair, um, you know, it's in a way it's sort of saying like you have to also think about the ground that the chair is standing on. Um, What's the ground in the metaphor? Uh, to me, I think that is um, our, our sort of political economic and um, structure that we have um, supporting technology. I think that that could also, the ground could also be thinking about governance of technology, both kind of formal and informal, the, the rules, the laws, um, codes of practice, so all of those things, I think, um, when that ground starts to get rocky or shaky, um, the chair is also going to be uncomfortable too, right? And so it's a it's a, a deep chair, a changing chair, and we also have to think about the ground.
0: Well, well, why should we think about that metaphor ground? I'm going to call the ground the ethics of the whole thing. Why should we care about the ethics of technological practice and production anyway?
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, I think, well, I guess we're, you know, we're speaking metaphor. I think that the ethics comes is the whole picture, right? It's like, you know, the process of making the chair, how the chair is changing in the ground and the way that we're interacting with, chair, with the chair. I think that the result of that is the ethics, you know, like, is it, are we comfortable? Is there something that's fair and just and right? Or in the end, are we uncomfortable? And so like, why should we care about it? Um, because, you know, we are talking about uh, technology and not chairs in a way, right? I mean, um, sometimes I think like, you know, tech now is bigger than just tech that, you know, the systems that they're embedded with uh, embedded in are also really big and really complicated. So another, you know, lesson another tool that comes out of science and technology studies is, you know, the idea of a socio-technical system. And so these are all the components, both like the bits of hardware and software that we think about, we think about technology, but also all the social and organizational components. And so the classic case study is on electrification systems and, um, some work by a historian named Thomas Hughes and others but the idea is essentially like all of those things that you know we can't really have electrification without power companies and we're talking you know thousands uh, of employees that work there, um, payrolls and banks um, and the internet now to transmit things and you know unless you can sort of understand all of that complexity like that is all part of tech like that that is all part of the system that affects whether or not we have a, a just and fair distribution of who's benefiting and who's not and so um, these systems have become bigger and they become more complex. And so like, we can't, we can't not think about them <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure you share my, my view on that too. It's like, you know, this is, um, you know, these are, um, some of the biggest challenges of the day. Um, and, um, uh, the other biggest challenges of the day, like are, are still, a lot of them are still even mediated through technology. Like, you know, we talk about, you know, COVID and how we're teaching through technology. And so, um, and you know, for those reasons, we can't, we can't ignore this.
0: How do you see undergraduate education in ethical tech as a corrective to a tech ecosystem that is so deeply and infrastructurally challenged to meet the nature of the good?
1: I don't know if, you've, if you um, or your listeners are you know, familiar with the term technological optimism. You know, People who see a problem um, and often think of a technological solution uh, to it uh, or, or look at advancing technology, and you know, um, tend to think about positive benefits of it. Um, I don't know if I'm a technological optimist, but um, despite everything, I am, I guess, a social optimist. Like, um, you know, I still have a lot of faith in people, and I think that, you know, if you want to change something, a system like um, tech companies, I think changing the people in them. Is a great way, um, one way to affect change. Of, of course, you know there's there's other things to look at. So, um, to me, I think that you know at, at education and different kinds of education are really it's really everything in terms of, of um, trying to change the way that technologies are produced and, and, and who they benefit.
0: What do you think that undergraduates who are thinking about going into that ecosystem and having a career in tech should know before they start practicing?
1: I mean i think it's fascinating that you know i mentioned tech lash earlier i think it's fascinating that you know um there are a lot of students out there that now think um the dream job might not be a job at facebook or google which is like you know when you think about how much those companies pay um when you think about you know the kinds of um other benefits and the the way that their workplaces are styled to be you know seeming like you're not working with your foosball table and your free meals and your free beer and coffee all these types of things um, it's fascinating to me that now people you know, can see all of that and think this isn't the job for me. And so I guess why um, do you think that they're thinking that that it's not I the mean, job for them? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to um, you know the practices and policies of these companies. You know, you see like you know we've seen headlines about you know um, uh, tech workers that want to unionize and want to strike, which is funny because usually you would think like oh these are these would be you know not as maybe as high paid or as prestigious of jobs when you, you see like labor organizing, but they're, they're kind of organizing and they're upset about like, you know, um, privacy policies of, of, you know, the companies or the way, um, you know, that the companies are sharing data uh, or the way that they're not making it transparent, how they're sharing data. And, um, you know, a lot, so people, you know, a lot of, uh, well, I don't know if we could say a lot, but there's, you know enough people now that see that kind of thing happen to think, okay, maybe I don't want a job at Big Tech. You're pointing towards something
0: really interesting here. My generation took the jobs at Facebook and my generation took the job at Google. What do you think that undergraduates thinking about their career in tech, if they decide to take that route, which I assume many of them, even the idealists will, and perhaps some of them for idealistic reasons will, what do you think that they need or that they should know before they start practicing?
1: So don't get me wrong. I I hope that I hope that idealistic people still take those jobs too because I think you know people are like I said people are are the key and so we can make change from the inside. Um, and so if we don't have you know people who are idealistic taking those jobs, we're we're in trouble. I'm just saying that some idealistic people might not take those jobs. Um, what do they need to know? I mean that is you know that again is something we need to know more about. Uh, I'm really curious into um, like thinking about, for instance, like, how is it that, you know, if I'm a mid-level manager at Facebook, you know, how do I, um, what are the the sort of issues that are, you know, the top sort of um, what we might call ethical issues, um, what are they for me? Um, and maybe I don't even use the term ethics, but maybe there are, are ways that I think about like sort of who's benefiting from my work at Facebook and who's not, you know when you're in tech uh, a lot of us know people in tech like you sit behind a screen all day you're coding um you're in meetings um you know it's like well you're not thinking necessarily thinking about ethics uh but the result of that whole system has huge implications for sort of who's benefiting and who's not and so you know certainly an awareness of how that you know um how that whole system operates is one thing and i think we can do a pretty good job of teaching people that now you know uh, understanding um from history, understanding other areas of technology, like you know this cheap case study, looking at um, the tomato harvester, we can teach people a lot of that understanding of the broader system that they need to learn, and a lot of the critical understanding. Um, but to really make people effective in these new types of roles um, in ethics and technology, we need to do a bit more work there um, to understand, you know, both the everyday practices and how the structure of of industry is changing. And I mean, quite honestly, too, like how we can change. The structures of higher education um, to, to, to train these people I think that we need you know uh, a decent dose of history is really important Why is a good dose of history important? These things have are finished so it can be easier to unpack a sort of even a recent historical case study about something that that was controversial and in, in technology and so you know oftentimes in the world of, of uh, you know um, technology we pin our hopes on the latest innovation. And, you know, for a, a while that was like genetically modified crops. And then that was nanotechnology and geoengineering. And so looking at some of these recent historical case studies really helps you unpack, like, well, w- what, what happened there? Like, what was it that, you know, inside uh, a governmental system that led us all to think that this was going to be the solution? Um, what were the scientists and, and engineers doing what were they producing? What was public uh, um, uh, opinions and viewpoints? um what were the stories and imaginations about this technology so history helps us understand all of that and then think back to our current moment and sort of say oh what's happening now i would say you also need you know uh, a dose of um philosophy you know my view about science technology and society is that you know we're combining history we're combining sociology we're combining philosophy all these different um disciplines um uh you know to understand um uh, what really is a much more complicated system that produces the technologies we have today.
0: I can't ask you about the ethics of technology today in this moment without also asking me to think about the moment that we're in, where all of us are teaching online and students are learning online, only through these massively hyper-mediated forms of tech products like Zoom and Canvas, where their interactions with the material and with you are filtered through tech
1: products. How's it going for you? Um, Lonely, <laughs> I would say. Like, I mean, right now, you know, we're having this um, conversation, you know, through this podcasting app, and I would much rather be sitting across the table, like, you know, um, here's the beverage again, having a cup of coffee. It's not the same, and of course, we know it's not the same. For me, I was thinking about it more is that, you know, I tend to be more of an extrovert, which means I get energy from interacting with people. Like, you know, when I, um, after I teach a class, you know, if the class ends in the evening, you know, often I can't sleep until midnight because I've sort of gotten so much energy from interacting with 25 smart individuals that like, I can't fall asleep for a while. And I can't get that energy through Zoom. I mean, it's not the same. It's just in terms of that kind of interaction, um, you know, um, so it's, it's lonely, it's slow, but that's not, but it's certainly better than not having these tools. Um, And, you know, it's,
0: going back to my metaphor about the chair now that you're sitting in the chair of zoom and the chair of canvas for all of your teaching has it changed how you think about these technologies
1: you know it's my view that if we were all a lot more sort of purpose uh, purposeful about our adoption of technology and really thought about like how is this technology going to change my classroom how is it going to change my learning experience for my students you know i'm, I'm using education as an example but like individuals you know like I never adopted Facebook because I spent a lot of time thinking about how it would change my everyday life. And as Americans, we don't do that. <laughs> we, we just adopt. Like, here's the latest thing. Oh, yeah. Here's my here's an email. Here's a password. Let's go. Let's use it, you know? And so, um, you know, there, another thing that I think everybody should learn about before they go away uh, to work in a tech company is the Amish uh, Christian community um, living in, you know, parts of Pennsylvania, New York, the, the Northeast. Um that are often seen as being anti-technology because they don't use a lot of technologies, you know, don't uh, don't use cars, you know, still use um, uh, horses for transportation. Um, But the funny thing is, is they're not anti-technology. They are just purposeful technology adopters. And so it's not that they won't use a phone, um, but they'll think about when and how do we want to use phones to support the values that we want to support and not hurt the values that we want to hurt. And they have... The biggest experimental laboratory in the world to study from, and that's all of their neighbors and the rest of the U.S. And so they look at how technologies have changed their neighbors, and they think, "Do uh, we want that change? Mm, maybe we don't want that change." And then they can decide exactly how to adopt and how to use technologies. And so, like purposeful adoption of technology, like I'm, I'm a big proponent. I'm not saying you don't use it; you just think about how you're going to use it. I actually really like the term
0: purposeful adoption, but I also think we could think about more purposive design in the sense that one thing that Zoom has made very apparent to me is that the design of Zoom assumed that the primary, maybe even the singular reason we interact with other people conversationally is because we transmit information to one another in a conversation. And it is becoming abundantly clear in the ways that Zoom does not replace or does not come even close to filling the function of a face-to-face engagement, how much we do in a conversation that has nothing to do with the transmission of information back and forth between different people. And that, I think, is actually a really exciting insight for my part. I'm really excited and interesting to see what kinds of technologies people come up with at this moment, not just because there are new technological capabilities that people f- suddenly find themselves Um, equipped to use, but also because we so clearly see the needs that technology cannot right now meet, and what kinds of innovations are necessary if we want to even partially replicate the feeling of being together.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's such a great. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, a lot of. What comes out of the you know the technology and society literature on design, it's just that you need to be purposive about it because these you know these design choices you make that you think are technical really have big um, social and ethical implications. My sort of story about Zoom with that too, and like how we have face-to-face interactions for a lot more than just transmitting information, how that's tied to the way it's designed. Is it was recently my birthday, and you know um, my loving wife, knowing that I love music, had arranged. Um, a virtual jam session with um, her brothers um, and um, our sister-in-law and she plays piano and sings and my brother-in-law plays bass and and you know i i was at my piano we had guitars we had the whole deal and we're all signed on to zoom and we're like this is sweet we can see each other you know and we have our ipads out with like the, the our chord charts and our lyrics and like you know this is something we've done we do face to face like whenever we get together and we're like yeah this is pretty cool the technology can happen and then we start doing it. We start playing and we start singing <laughs> and it totally doesn't work. And that's because Zoom, at least as a default, really prioritizes one person talking at one time. Because if you're just transmitting information back and forth, it's like, okay, now this voice is talking. So we're going to prioritize that. Oh, Now this other voice comes in. So we prioritize that. It's this very interactional exchange, kind of one thing at a time. And so whenever somebody was singing, it's like you could just barely hear them for a little bit and then they would cut out and somebody else would pick up. There was no way to sort of have this harmonious thing. But it's really not designed um, for, I mean, if I can use the metaphor for kind of like um, harmony or I would even say like social harmony, (laughs) you know, it's designed for like monotone um, and then another monotone.
0: Technically, human listeners, you now have your million billion dollar idea If you want to start developing a new product in this moment, that will help bring us into social harmony, musically and otherwise. You know, Matt, one comment I heard that resonated with me is that right now we are in a moment where, and I'm going to throw out another metaphor, the tree, so to speak, has fallen and wherever it falls, it will fall forever. And what I take this to mean is that right now in the context of our world crashing down on us, the decisions that we make right now about how to get that world up and going again, will stay with us permanently. Where we want that tree to fall are decisions that are going to have really long lasting Implications. And I think we're in this desperate rush right now, you know, to figure out how to make our world functional again. And I think that we can easily forget that whatever we put into motion right now, whatever we set down right now, whatever we build right now, whatever we develop right now, whatever we introduce into our tech ecosystem right now, will be the direction that the world will take when we start to rebuild it. That infrastructure is going to be the thing that we're going to have to build on. And of course, you know because most interactions take place online right now and are necessarily mediated through tech, every technological decision we make takes on, I think, a really deep impression. What new, urgent, ethical conversations do you think that we need to have right now about tech before we start building things for this new environment?
1: We go back to the chairman for the ground in a, a sturdy and stable way so that when we start building technology on top of it. Um, you know, we'll have a better chance of being comfortable in the chair, we'll have a better chance of getting fair and equitable outcomes. So I just have to say that, you know, I'm not thinking, you know, because, you know, we're always thinking about technology, but, you know, having those conversations about, you know, what, how do we have to change our structures?
0: Which is also a question about how we might need to change the weight we give to our values in determining product design and product release and product funding and consideration even in a deep infrastructural level about who we're letting do the designing and um how symmetrical that is to the world that they're designing for
1: yeah it all i mean you know this whole conversation really um all comes down i mean for me to to values i mean that's you know when you think about like what do people need to know before they go like uh to the to the tech industry is 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 really like you know helping um the ability to sort of take a, a complicated problem, unpack it in terms of what are the value, uh, what are the values that are at stake here, what might be, um, you know, what might be enhanced, what might be threatened, how are those complicated, uh, how are those tied together through complicated trade-offs, and then once you've identified all of that, like, what are some of the like um, ways we can sort of reason through. Um, these complicated value trade-offs, like you know, some ethical reasoning, but then thinking about the social, the technical, um, kind of levers and things we can change. I mean, it's, you know, it to me, it all starts with the values. Like you really have to understand, like you know, what you know, what values are at stake, and and really what it all, I guess for me, what it all really starts with, and and where I think I imagine you probably start a lot of your conversations with students too, is like, what are the values that we care about for full and meaningful life. And so, what you know? What a, I mean, you know? What a great There's no better time to have that conversation about what values do we care about for a meaningful life than right now, when we're all isolated. Many people are sick. Uh, people are dying. Uh, you know, this is this this like you know very um, grim picture. Uh, but it's really shown us like what's important in life. You know, connectivity, um, community um you know security health like these are all values that that you know we need to think about and yeah and then that percolates right through in terms of like who is getting hired who's designing technologies what decisions are they making
0: i'll leave uh you with one last one last question and maybe i'll
1: is it a metaphor
0: (laughs) it is oh yes one more metaphor (laughs) it's actually a parable but it's very close to a metaphor
1: Oh, there, good. I th- I'll take a parable, too. That's there's
0: a, there's a parable I love where two people walk into a barn. The first one sniffs, screws up his nose, and then starts complaining about the smell of horseshit. The second one sniffs, screws up his nose, and then smiles and asks, where is the pony? Because, as you have probably guessed, because with that smell, there has to be a pony somewhere. I love this parable. Because the two people walk into the exact same space and where one only sees shit, the other sees a pony. Of course, they're both right, right? So in the space that we're in right now,
1: do you see a pony? I see a pony. I mean, I, you know, I'm an optimistic person. I think I said, you know, I'm not always a technological optimist, but, you know, despite everything, I'm more of a social optimist. And so I think that there's a pony there. Like there is, you know, there is a lot that... There is a lot of suffering. There is a lot of people who have, are unhealth people who have lost jobs. But um, at the same time, there are there are changes that are going to happen, and I think I I'm optimistic about those changes. But at the same time, I'm not naive. We have to really work hard. That when we're starting to remake our society post-COVID, that we remake it in a way that that reflects our common human values better than we have. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Deb. Thank you.